Well, we're back in 1 Corinthians. We've been away from this book since, uh, I think, November, the last time I checked, and with Christmas, and then we did a series after the new year, and then we'd had, I was gone, we had some special speakers fill in, and then Ken Needham was here last week and spoke to our hearts, and so we're back in the book of 1 Corinthians, and generally we study through books of the Bible here. If you've just new to us and you've just been attending the past couple weeks, you're probably thinking, well, that's not what you've been doing, but uh, we, that's our main uh, diet, and so we started uh, 1 Corinthians a couple years ago, and we're just uh, plugging along, and we're entering into chapter 7, which talks about biblical principles for marriage and singleness, and uh, I don't know about you, but um, have you ever been to an event and you just kind of stand out like a sore thumb. I went to a chaplain's lunch this past week and I wore my chaplain's jacket because they always wear these chaplain's jackets to these events. So my wife said, well, why don't you just wear a suit jacket? It looks so much nicer. I said, well, they all wear these jackets. I don't know. It's just not a big deal. So it was just a black jacket. It looked fine, you know, but it's one of those tactical jackets. So I get there and everybody else has their suit coat on. So I'm like, I feel like a fool. But anyway, um, you know, and she's looking at me, go, oh, they all wear this. <laughs> uh, I, I just felt like I, I stood now. Nobody said anything because some other people had them as well. But for the most part, it can be embarrassing. And it reminded me of a, a, uh, a couple, uh, an illustration I heard of a couple. They had just moved um, uh, from Dallas, Texas to a small city in the south. And uh, when they first arrived, a kind ho- a family hosted them. And they stayed in this family's home, and uh, they had, were going to have a reception for the pastor and invited the whole church. And the invitations read, come to our house and meet our new pastor. And at the bottom of the invitations were instructions, and it said, dress casual. Um, well, my, the pastor thought, well, this is wonderful. This is great. What a treat. You know, um, we can come, and I've been in a coat and tie all week long going through these these uh, meetings and stuff with the people, and now I can just relax. And we had a, uh, we have a chance. My wife and I have a chance to dress like they dress here in Dallas casually. And so they went out and they got some blue jeans and snakeskin jacket and a big cowboy hats, and they thought, boy, they'd fit right in. And uh, when the hostess of the reception opened the door, the house that it was it was being held in, they learned something very quickly. She appeared in an evening gown. And her husband stepped out in a suit and tie. <laughs> and see, d- dressing casual in Dallas meant something slightly less than a tuxedo in, in, the, in this church. And that evening, the pastor and his wife felt like they stuck out like a sore thumb. And every time someone would look at them and roll their eyes, they thought, oh boy, you know, this is just a nightmare. Um, they're very embarrassed about it. Well, you know, I thought about that, and I thought, you know, as Western cultural culture continues to change and continues, our country continues to change its moral values and getting away from its Christian roots, I want to let you know that Christians are going to feel like that new couple in town. <laughs> um, they're going to feel, in many ways, our lifestyles will seem increasingly odd, increasingly old-fashioned. Um, if not even offensive to people. Um, and that's especially true when it comes to the subject matter of marriage and the Christian's practice of marriage. 
And I'm sure you get the same reaction sometimes when someone asks you how long you've been married, if you've been married for any length of time, going on almost 27 years, my wife and I, I, I never, it never, if it's an unbeliever, they always say the same thing. Well, you don't hear about that nowadays. <laughs> Congratulations. And I often wonder, well, what do they mean by that? And see, as, as Christians, we need to commit ourselves to observing what Paul said in this chapter, in chapter 7, about marriage. And when we do, I guarantee you, you're not going to fit in. You're going to stick out like a sore thumb. This isn't going to be a popular stance. And so today we're getting back to this study, and we find ourselves returning to this very practical chapter, chapter 7. And uh, it's practical because it touches everyone's life. There's a section here for everyone. And uh, it doesn't matter. Maybe you're single, and you say, well, what does marriage have to do with me? He addresses that. Maybe you're married. He addresses that. Maybe your spouse has passed away and you're widowed or a widower. That's okay. He covers that too. Maybe you've gone through the tragedy of divorce in your life, in your past somewhere, and you want to know how to deal with that. He touches on that as well. It's every segment of society. And Paul wants us to know practically how to deal with these things. Now remember, in chapter 6, when we went through chapter 6, we were talking about glorifying God in your body. Remember that? We looked at a couple things. We talked about principles for staying pure. And we said, you know what? There's some principles for the body in in, in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. And so that was a principle that we should live our life by. But then he also talks about the purpose of the body in verses 12 to 13. He goes on, and he says in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for what? The Lord and the Lord for the body. And we discovered that really our call as Christians is to glorify God in our bodies, in the way we live. And so now in chapter 7, you know, 1 Corinthians is not a very theological book. There's some theology in here, and we'll get to it, and we've already covered some of it. But it's, it's ways more on the practical side. So if you're a practical person and saying, just give me something I can apply to my own life, I don't need to know about all this other theology stuff. Well, you do need to know that stuff, because that's upon which our practicality and our, our belief system is built. But that being said, you're in for a treat, because this chapter is very practical. It covers every aspect of of our lives. And so before we get into uh, chapter 7 and kind of get into the text, we'll actually be doing that probably next week. But today, I just want to read chapter 7 in its entirety to you. Sometimes we don't take the time to do that in church. We read one or two verses. I want to read the whole thing. Remember, this is a letter. So this isn't meant to be you know, read over weeks and weeks. It's meant to sit down. If you got a letter, you would sit down and you would read the letter page after page. You wouldn't read page one on Monday and then come back and read page two on Tuesday. <laughs> but that's how we study the scriptures. So I just want to read in its entirety uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Paul talking about uh, these various practical things. So he begins there in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for a man not to have sexual 
relations with a woman. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to the husband, to her husband. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give, I, gave, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not be separated from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, He should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would remain unclean, but as it is, they are holy. For if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Verse 17, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself to the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. 
Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very, very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as, as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the person, for the present form of this world is passing away. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whomever she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment... She is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. You can see how this chapter is going to be practical. You can see how it might be a little edgy, okay, as we speak about these different things. But before we get into 1 Corinthians, I want to lay a groundwork for our study through this chapter. And I think the groundwork is going to be upon the teachings of Christ himself and a little bit of background on the Corinthian church. So let's look, first of all, you have an outline there. We can turn to these passages, Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. We want to, first of all, see what Jesus' teachings in the New Testament are concerning marriage. Jesus' teachings on marriage. The first thing that we see in, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, is marriage, according to our Lord, is not something that somebody just came up with. It's something that is designed by God. It's designed by God from the very beginning. He says in verses uh, 3 to 6 there, the Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking. So this was a test. They said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Remember, they're always trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus always saw it coming. 
Well, verse 4, he begins to answer. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. For they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man separate. This was our Lord's teaching on marriage. When he was asked, he had a very high view of marriage. He didn't say, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. You can marry whoever you want. I mean, that's the culture we live in. We lost that battle concerning marriage a couple years ago in the courts. Marriage has always been between a male and a female. It doesn't matter. They can redefine it all they want. God's definition stands firm. Because marriage is not designed by our culture. It's designed by who? It's designed by our creator. It's designed by God himself. Now, you say those things in today's society, you can end up in a heap of trouble. All right? It can be misconstrued as hate speech or, you know, social injustice or whatever you want to name, you want to label, you want to put on it. And too many people today are appeasing out of fear the culture. They're saying, well, you know, we're not going to dial down on this, that marriage is between a male and a female, because anymore it's not. So, oh, well, let's just, whatever they want to do. No, we have to stand our ground. We have to understand that marriage wasn't designed by this, pro- this culture. It was designed by who? It's designed by our creator. It's designed by God. doesn't mean we, we hate the people that, that are involved in this kind of lifestyle. It just means that they need the Lord. It, it means they're lost. And we need to reach out to them in love with the gospel of Christ. It's not up to us to make a judgment on them. But when it comes to definitions of marriage, it's designed by God, and it's a male and a female. That's what the scriptures say. Um, And so we want to be clear about that. Look over at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Marriage is to be monogamous between a man and a woman. Um, Polygamy has no place in marriage, at least from what our Lord says. In in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 to 9, it says, But from the beginning of creation, the very beginning, what did God do? It says, God made them male and female. Do you understand that the weight of our theology, the weight of everything we believe as Christians, goes right back to our understanding of the book of Genesis? If you don't get that right, you're not going to get anything else right. It goes right back to understanding that, first of all, that there was a creator. His name was God. And he created us. That's what the scriptures say. And he also created us male and female. I mean, there was reasons he did this. If he created everyone male, guess what? Just two males, we wouldn't have any procreation happening. We wouldn't be here today. I mean, God knows what he's doing. 
He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. And yet today in our culture so many times we think, well, no, that's old-fashioned. We don't want to buy into that. I, you probably believe in Noah and the ark too, right? Jonah and the, the great fish. Well, that's what's in the Scripture. So he says here, from the very beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is laying down here really a foundation that a marriage gets started on. Too many times we're too quick. We get married and then we end up living in mom and dad's basement for the next 20 years and you wonder why you don't have a great marriage. You're, you're violating the principle of Scripture. Now, I'm not against parents helping out the kids and getting them on their feet or whatever. Sometimes, you know, there's occasion when, you know, you do live with family members or whatever for a period of time. But God's purpose in marriage was what, what a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's a leaving and there's a cleaving. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Verse 9 says, What therefore God hath joined together, once again, let no man separate. And this leads to the next, the next verse, verse uh, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Marriage is permanent. That's God's design for it anyway. Marriage is to be unbroken. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is Jesus talking once again to the leaders there, and he's saying, hey, here's what was said, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except, there's an exception, for the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You know, this text is very personal to me. You know, I didn't get married till I was 33 years of age. And the woman I fell in love with, my dear wife, had been married previously. She had been married, had a daughter. And I thought, wow, I, I can't go down this road. And I think we dated for four or five years, six years, whatever it was, because I was having issues with this. And... I remember walking through this problem in my head and understanding, well, okay, why, why did this happen before? Why did you get this divorce? What was going on? And, you know, with wise counsel, and several pastors, they all said, well, yeah, she's not held to that. I mean, she's freed from that marriage. First of all, it was before she became a believer. Secondly, there was some issues involved that the Scripture makes clear if there's a divorce in that matter, then okay, you know what? You're, you're free to remarry. And we'll be talking about those in the, the near future. But 
I also understood that I was making a commitment to someone for life. Come hell or high water, we were going to be, once we were married, we were going to stay married. And that's a big commitment. And I think too many people today walk down the aisle with the idea that, well, we'll give it a try. If it doesn't work out, then, you know, I'll go find somebody else. Not as a Christian. That's not an option as a Christian. That's why it tells us to marry only Christians. Make sure that we're going down the right path with another believer. Because I guarantee you, once you are married, you are going to need every bit of spiritual help from the Holy Spirit just to live in any kind of sanity in a relationship with another person. Because even though maybe you're dating that person and you think, oh, they're just wonderful, you know, he's so wonderful, she's so wonderful. Once you get married, I don't know what happens. I'm just telling you from experience. And it's like, what in the world? And you got to cry out to God, God, give me understanding. Give me patience. And my wife needs to do so more so (laughs) at times. And it just shows us that this is something that God brings two people together. Not for your happiness. Not that you shouldn't be happy in your marriage. I'm not saying that. But it's not all happiness. Anybody who's married for any time can tell you that. If they, if they tell you anything different, they're lying. Because marriage is always a challenge. Why? Because you're dealing with somebody who's a sinner yourself. You're dealing with another person who's a sinner. Your spouse. And then you're called to come together and live in perfect harmony and love each other as Christ loves the church. Yeah, right. I mean, let's just get real. There are times when two people do not agree There are times when two people want their own way, when two people become selfish. Now, you may deal with that selfishness in a different way. You may just be quiet and say nothing and be, say, the submissive wife that God calls you to be, but inside your heart is raging. How could he do this? but you know it's wrong to share those kind of feelings, so you never share those kind of feelings. It's like kids that say, yeah, my parents never fought. I never saw them fight once. They had a perfect marriage. That's, there is no such thing as a perfect marriage. I mean, look at Adam and Eve. They're two perfect people. <laughs> they couldn't even get it right, right? So, I mean, come on. Let's, let's be real. But see, this third point is, is very... Indicative that we understand this because marriage is to be unbroken. Now, with that being said, is divorce a reality? Yes. I understand that from my own experience. Understanding my wife's experience. But see, it's, it's important that we understand that, you know what, when we make that commitment as a believer before God, nothing, nothing, should break that vow. Nothing should break that marriage commitment. That's that's the level of commitment that you're asked to take before God when you say, I do, to that other person. So marriage is to be unbroken. And then the last point here that Jesus teaches about, marriage is only for this life. Really? In Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, um, here in this section, I'll start in verse 23 just to give you the context, but Matthew chapter 22, 
verse 23, the Sadducees come and they begin to ask Jesus questions about the resurrection. Um, I've said this before, but the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was the Pharisees were okay with the resurrections, but the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Somebody taught me that in Bible college. I never forgot it. So that's how you distinguish those two theological groups. So the Sadducees come and they ask him about the resurrection. Verse 23, follow along in Matthew 22. The same day, Sadducees came to him, came to Jesus, and they say there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Once again, trying to trap him. Verse 24, teacher, Moses said, they're always going back to Moses. They didn't understand they had the very God who created Moses standing in front of them. They always went back to him. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's true. Now, there were seven brothers among us. So now here comes the test. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. I wonder what kind of woman this lady was, but then they all died. Verse 27, after them all, the woman died. So they all get wiped out. They're all dead. And their question is this, in the resurrection, Lord, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? (laughs) For they all had her as a wife. So whose wife is she really? And Jesus answers them in verse 29, and he tells them, pretense of their whole question is wrong. He's not touchy-feely with them. Look at what he says. You're wrong. (laughs) You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Wow. How to win friends and influence people there, Jesus. Where You didn't miss that class, I guess. Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. If he is not God of the dead, is he not God of the, of the dead, but of the living? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. Verse 33, and when the crowds heard it, they were, what, astonished at his teaching. So his answer was, your premise is all wrong because marriage is only for this life. I mean, you may really, 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 really love your marriage and your wife and your family. But guess what? When you get to heaven, he ain't going to be your wife. He's not going to be your husband. I think you'll know each other. I think you'll recognize each other. But that relationship is not going to be there. It's only for this life. Now, when you think of marriage, this is what Jesus taught. He taught that it was designed by God. He taught that it was to be monogamous between a male and a female. He taught that it is to be unbroken. And that he taught that it was only for this life. Now, turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we begin to read 
And we realize when Paul is writing this, he's responding to something they wrote him. They had a lot of questions about this subject matter. It says, now concerning the matters about what you wrote, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Now before we get into Paul's teaching on this, I think it's important to understand there's, there's some theologians that say, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can't really rely on that. Because Paul says in various places, all he's doing is sharing his opinion. It's not really inspired scripture. As a matter of fact, some of it even goes contrary to what the Lord said. And, well, we know that's not of God. And so they've decided, unfortunately, to do away with this part of the Bible. When it comes not just to marriage, but divorce, anything else, any other thing that's in there, they just say, well, that's just Paul. And the reason they say that is not that they don't have a reason. They do. If you look at, you you may have noticed it, but you look at verse 12, Paul says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And they say, there you go. I mean, this is just a rogue apostle out there saying, hey, you know, I don't even feel led of the Spirit. I'm just going to tell you this off the cuff. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and if she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Well, we can't take that because Paul says that's not from the Lord. And they also point to 725. Look at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. This is what Paul says. But I give my judgment as one by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So right there he's saying, once again, he's just sharing his opinion. But he also, as we read at the very last verse, look at what he says, and you wonder why he says this. Verse 40, he says, Yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. (laughs) Sounds a little defensive there, aren't you, Paul? Well, what's going on here? See, the critics tell us that Paul didn't know whether he had God's perspective or his own. He didn't know if he had the Spirit or not. And the best thing to do is just do away with this chapter. That's very inaccurate. And it's it's a faulty understanding of what Paul is communicating here. It is true that Paul nowhere in his other epistles gives statements such as these. Not I, but the Lord, or not the Lord, but I. You know, I'm just going to share my opinion. He doesn't do that. But that doesn't mean he's simply giving his own opinion here, that he's not inspired by the Holy Spirit and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write these truths. See, the reason that he says those things, as I pointed out in those verses, is that he makes it clear that he's speaking new truth. He's saying, you didn't hear this from the Lord. The Lord didn't address this. But I'm telling you this. He's not quoting Jesus. He's not quoting from the Gospels. And he wants them to understand that. He reaches back and he kind of looks at what the Lord taught and he says, look, I'm going to tell you something about being married that the Lord hasn't told you yet. (laughs) That's what he's doing. 
Then in verse 12, he says, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. In other words, he says, this is something new that the Lord didn't even talk about. I'm not quoting the Lord anymore. This is something the Spirit of God gave to me. In verse 10, it's as if Paul was saying there, kind of, he's quoting the Lord, unquote. You know, kind of think of it that way. And in verse 12, he's giving new instructions. Now, those new instructions are definitely under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because we believe every jot and tittle, every word is under God's inspiration as he's authored it. He's not disclaiming that. He's not saying, oh, this is my opinion. This isn't God's inspired word. But he's putting himself really on an equal plane with the Lord. You know, how many of you, when you look through your Bible, you have red letters where there's, there's Jesus' actual words? You know, you've seen those red letter Bibles, right? They're okay. I mean, it kind of, you focus in on, oh, well, this must be the words of the Lord. But in a way, it does, an, it does us an injustice. And it does so this way. I think some people read their red letter Bibles and they focus just on the red letters because those are the words of Jesus. And those are more important than any other words. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Don't believe that. That's not true. Jesus' words are just as important and inspired as Paul's words or any of the other scriptures. Now, there's nothing wrong with using a red-letter Bible just to kind of focus real quick on the Lord's teaching on a certain page or whatever, but please don't put undue emphasis on those words because they're red. That's just man's way of selling more Bibles. That's what it is. And so when you read those scriptures, just remember that every word you're reading on the pages of scripture is inspired by the word of God. It's inerrant. It speaks truth to our souls. So when we come into a chapter like this, it speaks some edgy things about marriage and about divorce and celibacy, all these things we're going to be addressing in the coming weeks, we can be assured that this is Scripture. This isn't Paul's just opinion. This is what God inspired Paul to write. And when he makes those references, he's just basically saying, look, I know the Lord didn't say this, but I'm telling you this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The entire Bible is the revelation of the Spirit of God. Yes, even some of those Old Testament books that you start to read and you pull your hair out and go, I don't understand what this thing's talking about. It's okay. Ask God for wisdom. He will give it to you. But don't think it's not inspired. When our Lord was giving the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, he said the disciples were were scribes. It meant the disciples were going to be the writers of the New Testament. And in 1352, he says this, And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. What was Jesus referring to there in Matthew 13, 52? These scribes, these apostles who are going to write the New Testament, they're going to bring some new stuff and they're going to bring some old stuff. Sometimes they're going to be quoting the Old Testament. 
Other times, God's going to give them revelation just as he did here with Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 7 that's not recorded anywhere else. And that's okay. Because it's all inspired scripture. Well, what was Paul's teaching on marriage? Well, to give you some background information, remember where we're at. We're in Corinth, right? Corinth. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a little podunk town up in Idaho where everybody's nice. It, it's, it's a cesspool. Corinth is a cesspool. It's a San Francisco times 10 times 50, okay? It's just a really, really bad place morally. And one of the areas that this church that was started there by Paul. He started this church. New believers started coming. They became Christians. They, they came to the church to fellowship. Well, they're coming out of this cesspool. They're coming out of all this pagan morality. And now they're a new person in Christ. And marriage was an area in which these Corinthians had some serious issues. They had major problems in their marriages. And you have to understand that in the context when we go through this chapter. It's not going to make any sense. We have to know something about the problems that existed in Corinth that these new believers in Christ would face in the area of marriage. They were having issues adjusting to their new life in the church, to their new life in the community of believers, because they came out of this pagan background. It would be like if if someone got saved out of the the drug culture and they're used to, you know, carrying around a gun and, you know, beating up people and stealing their money and selling their drugs and all of a sudden they get saved. You know, their language may be a little salty. (laughs) You know, the first time, the second time, maybe the first couple months they come to church so they realize, whoa, I have to ask God to control my tongue. That's okay. You know? And see, these Corinthians had major issues in their backgrounds. They came out of a pagan background. And besides that, they were in under the influence of the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, they had all kinds of uh, convoluted ideas when it came to marriage. And for good reason. You had different segments of society that had to deal with this subject of, ma- of marriage. It was okay to have slaves back then. So what if you were a landowner and two of your slaves decided they wanted to get married? What was your your reaction to that? Well, just practically, you'd come up with something like they did. They they had the marriage of slaves, but slaves were kind of viewed as less than dogs. (laughs) So they weren't given a big, you know, marriage or anything like that. It was called a tent companionship. They could live in that tent out back. Joe and Martha, my two slaves, yeah, they like each other. That's okay. They're going to have a companionship kind of a a marriage. It's not big some ceremony. They're just going to live together. And the landowner would say, that's fine. Go ahead. As long as it doesn't cut into my profit, what you're doing for me, that's okay. But you know what? Who had control over their relationship? The landowner. Because at any time, say, hey, sorry, Joe, uh, I got a bid from a guy across the way who needs a a slave that's hard worker, and he's giving me a lot of money for you, so (laughs) you're going over there now. Well, what would happen? All of a sudden, 
Martha's left without a husband, without a live-in partner, whatever you want to call it. So what would happen? Elena, ah, pick somebody else from the litter there. You know, you can get somebody else. So that's what would happen. And a lot of these people then became Christians. And so they're going, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> How do I deal with this now? And so the landowner was perfectly free to separate them at any time. And many of these early slaves were, were Christians And maybe they had multiple relationships going on before they were Christians. Well, that created problems in the early church because many of these early Christians had all this mixed up background and baggage. I mean, maybe they had kids from multiple partners. Who knows? And the Corinthian believers were wondering, well, if they were supposed to end this marriage now or... or now that they came to Christ, should I stay with this slave? We didn't really have a ceremony or anything. What do we do? They wanted that answer. Whether they were living together under this tent companionship, what, what Paul clearly said, you, know, you don't have to dissolve that relationship. He even emphasized the sanctity of marriage as they were. Didn't matter whether it was legal or not. He wasn't looking at that. He basically said, stay together, prove yourselves to be true to one another, love one another, and make every effort to make your marriage one that God designed it to be. So you had the slaves that had to deal with marriage on that level. And then you had another section of the, the Corinthian society were just the, the common people. And when you move kind of a step up from the slaves to the common people, You come to a common law marriage, we call it today. They were married in common law. Basically, it meant that a man and a woman could live together for one year, and at the end of the year, they were considered husband and wife. They didn't have to go for a judge. They didn't have to do anything. They would be identified as husband and wife. Today, we have the same thing. I think it's seven years. I don't know if it's state by state or a federal thing, but it's seven years roughly. You don't have to go get married. You just live together, and pretty soon you're recognized as a couple. See, the church would have to face people who had that kind of marriage. And they started asking all these questions. Is he really my wife? Or my husband? Is she really my wife? We don't have any paper. We don't have a marriage license. How do we identify this? The Lord didn't deal with that particular issue, so Paul had to instruct the Corinthians once again on the sanctity of marriage. Then you had another group of people within the Roman society. You think it's crazy today. The the third form was basically marriage for sale. (laughs) If you were a father and you had a daughter and say your business fell on hard luck and you needed some money, come here, sweetie. We're going to take you down to town, and we're going to auction you off. The highest bidder gets my wonderful, beautiful virgin daughter. And he'd make a ton of money. And then they were married. That was considered marriage. The father could sell his daughter to the highest bidder, who then became her husband. I mean, in a way, it worked out for the father. I don't know about the daughter. Um, 
That was another thing. So they, they had maybe Christians that were caught up in that. Or fathers who had daughters who had become Christians and say, well, what do I do with my virgin daughter now as a Christian? And then you had marriage of the noble, above the common people, above those who would just sell their, their daughters for marriage. You had a more sophisticated segment of society. And this is where we get, surprisingly, our marriage ceremony. It was fascinating to find this out. This group of people were kind of the elite of society. They had the money, so they had the means to have a party and to celebrate this ceremony. It involved exchanging rings. It involved placing them on what they call the ring finger of the left hand. This isn't Christian. This is just their, their Roman beliefs. And this custom actually came from a second century Roman writer who taught that there was a nerve running from the ring finger of the left hand straight to the heart. And whether that's true or not, medically, I don't know, but they said they claimed it was. They worked on cadavers, and they said, yeah, this is what we find. So we're going to put the ring on the left finger, the ring hand. They also had cake. I don't know what kind of cake it was, but they wore veils. They had music. They held right hands, and they also had, they wore wreaths. I mean, that's really where our modern-day Mary's ceremony comes from, does it not? It comes from a pagan practice that basically back then, in the early days of the Catholic Church, they took that pagan practice and adapted it into what we would know, be known today as the marriage ceremony. None of that is mentioned in the Old Testament or the New Testament. In fact, the Hebrew wedding lasted usually seven days. Can you imagine? Fathers, wow. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to put that wedding on. In some countries, it's still that way. They have a big celebration. And the church of Corinth was kind of inundated with all these people who were married in one of these four ways. So it wasn't the traditional sense of the society like ours is today. Um, and so they had all these questions about their future and the future of their spouse, or the future of their, their daughter who wanted to be married, or their son who wanted to be married. And they'd been so wrapped up in this Roman culture, they didn't know what the answer to the questions were. So they wrote Paul this letter. Not this letter, but the, a letter, and they asked him, hey, what do we do about marriages in our churches? This is a hot topic. All these people are asking. That's not too uncommon from what we have today. If you go into a Christian bookstore online and you look under marriage, tons of resources, tons. I mean, more than you could ever read probably in your lifetime, just book after book after book. And they're all giving you their slant on marriage. So the Apostle Paul was not too wasn't writing them back and saying, well, you just have to impose Roman law. He wasn't doing that, clearly. He and the other New Testament writers and teachers simply taught the sanctity of marriage, and they encouraged their new converts to make the most out of their situation. 
may not even be the ideal situation. Marriage was an area in which the Corinthians had serious problems. Well, what was the, the cause of their problems? Well, homosexuality was rampant back then. You say, what do you mean back then? It is today. Some believe it was even worse, if you can even imagine that. I mean, it was just all over the place. And you had people probably that were being saved out of that lifestyle. And now they want to know, well, what do I do? Do I get married? How do, you know, what goes on from here? They also had polygamy. They had multiple marital partners. They had no problem with that. I mean, today there are segments of society that have no problem with that. People, there's even reality shows about it, right? With the Mormons and all. That's crazy. I mean, I scratch my head and go, man, I can't, I can't even handle one woman. What would the heck would I do with two or three? I mean, holy mackerel. Think about it. I, I just don't get it. And yet, they do it. It's totally against God's design for marriage, as we see. So they had that problem. They had the homosexuality. They had the polygamy going on. They had the use of, of concubines. This was just an accepted practice. You know, there are, there are even segments, I'll say it this way, segments of the church where it's very common, <laughs> very common for someone who calls themselves a pastor to have someone on the side besides their wife. Mind-blowing, right? And it's accepted behavior. It's, it's really sad. Um, back then, they had the same issue. And it wasn't like a guilt thing. I mean, the wife would probably say, where are you going? Oh, I'm going over to Sally's tonight. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow. It was just commonplace. Everyone was doing this. And it's like today our society, you know, I mean, for, for two young people who meet each other, the first question usually, well, did you hook up yet? Well, what does that mean? Well, we all know what that means. It's just commonplace. You know, the idea of marrying somebody and not having any relationship sexually with that person is so far out of people's minds today. They can't even comprehend that. Usually they'll come back with, well, wait a minute. Aren't you even going to see if you're compatible first? What does that mean? You're relegating your compatibility down to sexual behavior? Really? I mean, it's silly. But that's what our society has done. And so you had the use of concubines going on. Even back then they had, I was reading this and I was cracking up, but they had a, a form of woman's liberation movement. Um, Juvenal, this one writer, says he was a Roman poet, and he wrote about women of that day and age. You can read his writings. But one thing, he, he wrote about women who rejected their own sex. They wore helmets. They delighted in feats of strength. 
And with exposed breasts, they hunted pigs and spears. It's pigs with spears. He also said that they wore out their bridal veils with so many marriages. I mean, when you stop and think about it, you wonder if people running around today, but, you know, it's true. That is a direct assault on God's design for marriage. And so you had all this chaos going on in their community and in their, their society, and yet God comes along and says, no, that's, that's not normal. You need to be, uh, understand that God designed marriage, that, God, that marriage is to be monogamous between a man and a, uh, a, a woman, and also that it's unbroken, and that it's only going to last this lifetime. That same writer wrote this. He says, Thus does she lord it over her husband, but before long she vacates their, her kingdom. She flits from one home to another, wearing out her bridal veil. See, the picture of a right marriage could be very confusing to this new church in Corinth. There were people in and out of marriages. Divorce was rampant. There were problems with who was really married and who wasn't. There were problems with someone who was living in a tent with a partner in the backyard because they were slaves. And if his master sold his wife, well, was he free to remarry? What, what goes on there? They had many problems, and they desperately needed answers. And that's why they wrote Paul a letter. And this is what Paul is responding to. He's responding to their letter. Well, that gives us the background. That gives us Jesus' teachings on marriage. And next week, we're going to begin to see how Paul answers these questions. And I guarantee it's going to be very practical for all of us um, concerning marriage, concerning celibacy, singleness, and even concerning uh, the matter of divorce. And so uh, I encourage you to take time this week to reread that chapter. Read it over and over and over if you can, because the more you become familiar with it, the better it will be in your understanding when we teach through it. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this introduction to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Lord, I just pray that this foundation that we laid today will equip us to understand when we get into the, the, the meat and the fiber of this chapter as Paul te- leads us through his teaching on singleness, on celibacy, on marriage, on divorce. Lord, I'm sure that affects every one of us. We, we've all either been married or single or know somebody who's been divorced if we haven't been divorced personally. Lord, we pray that you would uh, take these words and, and apply them to our hearts and lives this week. And Lord, just remind us to pray for those who um, are outside of Christ, who have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, And I pray that they would turn from their sin to the Savior, that you would do that work in their heart, and then give them that assurance of their new life in Christ. And we just uh, ask you to bless our time of fellowship across the way after the service, and just uh, bless this day. We ask this in Jesus' precious name, and all God's people said, amen.